Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Happy Monday. Welcome to the show. Wow, what a weekend it has been. Yes, it has. So many emotions, so much alcohol on my end. Um, but it's just been a twist of events, um, really, to, from where we were on Friday to where we are now. A lot of celebrating has taken place, depending on who you you know you were rooting for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So where were you when you find out found out that Biden was the president-elect? So I was up early on Saturday, 5 a.m., watching MSNBC from bed. And then I dozed back off to sleep. Didn't wake up until I got a text message from my mother at 8 a.m. saying, we finally have a president. And then I rushed to see who was talking about it. I turned back on my computer on MSNBC. And then I flipped to CNN. And I was just so sad because I missed the moment everyone declared it. And so, yeah, after that, I, I ended up, you know, watching the television and seeing everyone just go to the to the streets and and I was screaming from my balcony like I started walking yeah. it was just a moment <laughs> where you just felt the energy in the air and I will never forget it yeah it was pretty amazing being part of that I was sleeping you know I like my Saturday morning sleeping so uh, I was sleeping next to someone who was awake <laughs> and I wake up you know just to like move you know to the other side of the bed and he goes Shira there's an announcement. <laughs> like what? You know, oh, Biden has been elected. And so, of course, I got up right away. My first thing was, you know, to check everything on social media uh, and then pop a bottle of champagne because I was waiting to pop that bottle for the past week. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I most definitely poured a big old cocktail. And it was like 930 a.m. and I had no <laughs> yeah. shame. That's all I'm saying. No shame. All right, but we are here today. We've got a lot of news because uh, it doesn't end. The fight doesn't end. Let me tell you, there's lots happening in uh, D.C. right now here on What's Trending this hour. Actually, Senator spoke today following this weekend's presidential election results, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had this to say. The president has every right to look into allegations and to request recounts under the law. And notably, the Constitution gives no role in this process to wealthy media corporations. The projections and commentary of the press do not get veto power over the legal rights of any citizen, including the president of the United States. Now, just to be clear, the numbers of the electoral votes called the election and the media reported on the numbers they saw, which make it clear that Joe Biden was the president-elect. They weren't making the numbers up to create the election results you and know to call the election. Honestly, Republicans are going to say whatever they want to say. Lindsey Graham is willing to die on this hill and put his political career on um, on basically on on stake, I guess, at, point, at one point. Like he doesn't he doesn't really care. And uh, he's willing to kiss Donald Trump's behind so much that he's willing to kind of go with these conspiracies. And it's so unfortunate um, that Republicans are doing that and, and not even conceding to this thing. It's just wild. And honestly, re go ahead. I mean, they're recounting the votes in Georgia. And the, mm -hmm. guess what? Joe Biden's actually polling and doing better numbers than what they originally said. So go ahead and count the vote if you yeah. want to. I'm okay and, with that. Yeah, the Democrats are not scared because it's for both sides. They're like, sure, go for it. it you know, it, yeah, the whole thing is uh, a bit crazy, but it will end up happening and the results will be here hopefully very soon. Uh, but Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson, you know, he tested positive for COVID-19 today. Uh, this comes from his team who said he's in good spirits and feels fortunate to have access to effective 
therapeutics, which aid in markedly speed his recovery. Uh, then news of his diagnosis comes after he attended an election night watch party at the White House with President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who, guess what, was diagnosed with the virus on Friday. And you can't make this up. And then, of course, they're all at this event, you know, at the Four Seasons landscaping, which was that whole thing was ridiculous on Saturday. Like, it, it, this continues just to evolve into something that doesn't feel real. And yet it's happening. And uh, that was what's trending this hour, but we'll have more in the next hour right here on Let's Go There. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Well, you know, we got to start off the T-Report by talking about Alex Trebek, uh, you know, the Jeopardy host. Uh, it was announced by the show on Sunday that he did die following his battle with stage four pancreatic cancer. He was 80 years old. And so we're sending so much love to his family and just remembering his legacy. He's absolutely phenomenal. Um, so yeah, sending a lot of love to that. But I want to move on because we have to talk about how Anderson Cooper. So on Thursday uh -huh. night, um, Trump gave a very angry speech claiming that, you know, there was election fraud, blah, blah, blah. Well, Anderson Cooper, if you were watching since uh, CNN, he actually insulted the president saying basically that he was um, like, obese, like an obese turtle laying on his back. Here's that moment. That is the president of the United States. That is the most powerful person in the world. And we see him like an obese turtle on his back, flailing in the hot sun, realizing his time is over. Now, I mean... Saturday, which I actually thought that was hilarious, but on Saturday, Cooper apologized while interviewing Yang about the very real possibility that Trump refuses to concede to Biden, where Yang actually made a reference to the moment leading to Anderson Cooper saying he regretted it. By the way, I should say that I, uh, I regret using that those words because uh, that's not the person I really want to be. And uh, I... Yeah, I, it was in the heat of the moment and I regret it. Yeah, that led to a lot of memes. And, you know, I, I thought it was entertaining. I couldn't help but laugh. Uh, but, you know, I think that that was a responsible thing for Anderson to do as a journalist who's reporting on these things. You know, he showed a little bit of shade, but he doesn't want to continue feeding into that narrative that the media are just, you know, on the left and that they're trying to be biased and everything. So I thought he did what he had to do. Yep, yep. Now coming up in the T-Report, we're going to talk about some of the celebrity reactions to the election. So be expecting that up next in the next hour. Okay, uh, but coming up next, Biden's immediate executive orders he plans to sign to reverse Trump's policies. We're going to be talking about that with the Washington Post in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. I'm a proud Democrat, but I will govern as an American president. I'll work as hard for those who didn't vote for me as those who did. While I may be the first woman in this office, I will not be the last. Because every little girl watching tonight sees that this is a country of possibilities. That was President-elect Joe Biden and VP-elect Kamala Harris's acceptance speeches Saturday night in Delaware. And they've got a long road ahead, but are already getting to work. Natalie Jennings is back with us, editor of The Fix for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us. I feel like it feels like a whole new life since we last spoke. Uh, it does. Um, <laughs> still busy on the news front, um, but uh, a little bit of resolution. <laughs> the big question for me is, do you think it's going to be difficult for the Biden-Harris camp to rebuild this country? It, it, it's going to be really hard for them to, one, kind of rebuild everything that Trump's administration kind of caused. Yeah, I mean, difficult is uh, probably not strong enough a word. Uh, if you are looking for some degree of unification, I mean, I know Biden had, you know, several million more more votes than Trump, but still um, almost half the country voted for Trump. Um, and Biden campaigned on wanting to reach out to them. Uh, and now the way that the election shook out with the uh, Senate likely going to stay Republican. We won't know that until Georgia is over, but I'd say Republicans odds are better than not of, um, you know, he's going to have to govern in a divided government with Republicans in the Senate um, and also reach out to Republicans who, um, you know, a lot are not receptive to his message in a lot of ways. Yeah. And there's word that Biden is planning to sign a bunch of executive orders once he is sworn in at January 20th. What are you hearing is the priority on that front? 
a lot of that is going to be what he can do immediately to roll back what the Trump administration did, which was to roll back what the Obama administration did. So he'll do the things that are within his power immediately. A lot of those things, I mean, a lot of it's going to be going into the agencies and figuring out, you know, exactly what to do. But there are some things he can do, like getting back into the Paris Climate Agreement. DACA protections, he can, you know, just sort of undo some of those things and has plans to. And, you know, he's got enough government experiences organized enough to to be getting his ducks in a row on that right now. Um, you know, we're two days in and we're hearing about this stuff. Yeah. Again, you're hearing the voice of Natalie Jennings, editor of The Fix for The Washington Post, as we talk about uh, Biden already making moves. Well, speaking of that, Chuck Schumer is saying that Biden can cancel first 50000 like the first $50,000 in student debt via an executive order in the first 100 days. That feels super intense to be like, yeah, he can get this done when there's people like Mitch McConnell just waiting to like block every move. Do you think that could actually happen? Um, that specifically, it seems like Schumer was referring to something that is in the executive branch's power to do. Um, you know, there doesn't have to be a law passed to do that. I think that's what Chuck Schumer was saying. I haven't looked at it, but it sounds like that's what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, so there are things that he can do without asking Congress's permission. The hard, the big things that haven't gotten done over the last many years is because Republicans and Democrats have to agree on things like, you know, big bills that don't just kind of kick the can down the road on spending, which is pretty much all they've done uh, recently. And so the real tough task is going to be figuring out what, Mitch McConnell will agree to where that fits in with Biden's policy priorities. That that there's not a big slice of things. You know, <laughs> what is enough? Republicans haven't been particularly loyal to their fiscally responsible principles during the Trump administration, and we saw signs already that they want to revisit those roots um, in, in terms of how much they were willing to agree to on a coronavirus stimulus, and that's why we haven't seen one of those in yeah. Nally, as we wrap this up and we're going to be moving into uh, where Trump's head is at in a moment, but can we just talk about the coronavirus task force that Biden seems to already be building and this new ethics guidelines at the White House? Because that's pretty important, it seems. Yep. Task one is coronavirus. He said that in his speech on Saturday. He has convened a panel, panel, excuse me, of a dozen or so scientists and people with government experience, people with a, a range of backgrounds to start working on things that they can do immediately, start making recommendations and also outwardly to show that he is listening to scientists. So is Fauci gone? Like Fauci's no longer a part of this thing? Uh, yeah, he's still in government. He has not um, uh, been removed by President Trump. His position is one that does not change necessarily with political administration. But it just seems like he's not going to be working closely with the Biden camp. He's not part of this Biden task force. This isn't government officials. It's a lot of former government officials in that. I'm sure Fauci has his hands full. um, (laughs) I would imagine that they are or will be communicating, but there's, there's, nothing to read into this about Fauci's status, I think. All, All right. right. Well, too busy. <laughs> yeah, it seems like he he, uh, he has a, a good uh, future ahead for him. <laughs> he's done well. All right, Natalie Jennings, you're going to stick around with us because after this, obviously we know there's still obstacles ahead, a president that hasn't conceded, and a Senate race that is far from over. Why all eyes are on Georgia. We discuss that next in two minutes. Let's go there with, with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Before we get into Georgia and the Senate race, how worried should we be about Trump's continued fight to win this election? Back with us as editor for The Fix from The Washington Post, Natalie Jennings. So let's dive in because I don't think we've ever really seen this before. How hard will it be for Biden to jump in and do any of the work that we mentioned earlier without a peaceful transition? It depends on how long this drags out. Um, you know, this is a, a political problem in, in terms of, you know, Trump is not handing things over. We want to reassure the world that America runs smoothly. But this is also running into a bureaucratic problem, um, an, an actual governing problem. There's a, a protocol that was put in place, um, actually, I think at the end of the Bush administration that involves funds for transition offices, you know, allows people to transfer knowledge, um, gives office space. Of course, office space isn't is a little bit weird right now. But anyway, things like that, that happen when there is a transition, um, you know, that can't be going on if the current occupant of the White House doesn't agree that there is a new president incoming. He appointed the woman who actually signs the pages that say um, 
this is officially happening. Here's all these funds that you can now access. She is not. She's uh, refusing. She is not. Yeah, she says uh, the election results have not been ascertained yet. Um, And so that is her justification for not unlocking that. Girl, a mess. That is just a mess. But let's move on to Georgia because there's a runoff happening, right? And I feel like there's so many new things that are, one is just unprecedented that's happening in this political history that we're seeing. Can you kind of explain, like, how do runoffs actually work? Are they recounting votes, getting more people to vote? Can you, like, just break that down for us? Okay, so there's two Senate races in Georgia, along with the presidential race. Um, The entire Georgia vote is likely to be recounted. It's Secretary of State says they're going to recount the votes. Um, The presidential race has still not been called yet um, by the media organizations that make these calls, but the runoff is more clear-cut. So um, there's two races going. Neither candidate, neither Republican candidate, who kind of came out on top in those two races, got to 50% of the votes, which is what Georgia and its unique system requires. So that means we go to a runoff in January where one candidate, you know, can get over 50% because only two candidates advance mm. in each race. Throwing out a lot of numbers. I know that's hard on audio, but um, but this is really rare. Um, you know, Georgia has a unique system. They're in a unique circumstance now because uh, they had a senator who retired. So they had to have a special election this year. And so we both have both of these races going on. And the Senate majority right now uh, or is 48-50 Repub- uh, Democrats to Republicans. So two races means, you know, if Democrats were to win those two, they get to 50-50. And with the presidency being Democratic, the Democrats would have a tie break. And that means they really get to control the agenda and Mitch McConnell would not be a leader. Um, yeah. And so everyone's kind of looking at Georgia for this. And I think there's gonna be a lot of campaigning happening around uh, this race, specifically at a national level, too, uh, which is is pretty unprecedented that we would all be focused on Georgia like this. Georgia, yes. Uh, very conservative place that holds the keys to everything. And, you know, normally you'd say this is a shoe in for Republicans. But now we see if Donald Trump can lose, what could happen? Yeah, Natalie Jennings, again, is talking to us, editor of The Fix for The Washington Post. I just want to play uh, this clip, Georgia election official Gabriel Sterling today. This is what he had to say. We are going to find that people did illegally vote. That's going to happen. There are going to be double voters. There are going to be people who shouldn't, did not have the qualifications of a registered voter to vote in this state. That will be found. Is it 10,353? Unlikely. But every election, as I've said, I think every day at this podium, is imperfect. So it seems like even these election officials are like, this is not, um, you know, fake. The, we, you know, this happens. Elections will have some votes that are not real. You know, all those things that the other side is mentioning. This is pretty par for the course. There's mm-hmm. there's nothing abnormal here, but yet we're still going to do the recounts. We don't think we're going to find 10,000, um, you know, false votes right. in that recount. The reason for the recount is that um, at a certain margin of victory, there is an automatic recount. It's not because a certain amount of those votes are suspected to be fraudulent. So how important is this? Because uh, the I believe the election for these runoffs is January 5th. That's like two weeks before uh, Biden's inauguration. Mm-hmm. Is Biden going to have to be engaged with these runoffs so it doesn't kind of like come back to him and kind of look like, oh, this does not look good if Democrats don't win these two seats? To the degree that the um, political consultants for these candidates think that will help. Mm-hmm then you can expect Biden to be involved. It's very important to his agenda. It really changes the game um, in terms of what he can expect to get done. Uh, so it, you can bet that if they want him there, he'll be there. Um, yeah. And flip side for Republicans, the question is, is Trump motivated to do that if he's not going to be president? Is there anything in it for him? And, and if not, how much does he get involved? Natalie Jennings, thanks again for being with us. That was Natalie Jennings, editor of The Fix for The Washington Post. Now coming up, AOC's warning to Biden after his big win this weekend. We discuss that next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez spoke to the New York Times this weekend. You know, she won re-election this week with more than 68% of the vote in New York's 14th district. And she had a lot to say about the leaders of the Democratic Party. She criticized them for being distrustful of her and other 
more progressive members, who she argued have actually been pivotal in winning votes and candidates for the party. Now, should she be continuing to drag other members of the party? At this point, have we moved forward? We need to move forward, at least. What do you think, Ryan? Um, I don't think she's dragging anyone. I think she what she's trying to say here is that, uh, you know, kind of old school Democrats, they need to kind of start warming up to the idea of moving forward. And moving forward means starting to accept a lot of these progressive uh, candidates and members of the Democratic Party, because if we want to get things done, if we want to have these conversations with the Democratic Party has kind of always been a leader of moving things forward, they can't just automatically stop and say, well, we're not sure if this is messing up our voter base when clearly that's not true because young people who tend to lead more of the in the progressive space they came out in large numbers expecting one to get Donald Trump out but also expecting that we are going to hold you know Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the rest of the Democrats mm-hmm. accountable for moving the needle forward and I love what she's saying in all honesty and somebody has to say it yeah and I, I think what you just mentioned is very key to this holding your own party accountable. I don't think it's bad to do that. That doesn't mean you're against the party. It just means that you hope for a certain thing and you're going to fight for that, including as she continues to fight for those who are most vulnerable. I think it is important because historically, and she's continued to say this, historically, her party, you know, once an administration comes in, they forget about the progressives, right? The people that did help them get elected and she doesn't want that to happen or else what she has said is the party's future will be bleak and i I think that's a fair thing to say it really will because it's already we're already i think a lot of people are already at the edge where they showed up this time but if things seriously do not change moving forward they're going to lose this momentum of wanting to be a part and engage in the political process and so if you're not willing to meet people you know halfway yes i still feel like alc has so much to learn she is young but what she proves and clearly what people want because they voted for her in a large amount they want to hear from her they want to know what she's bringing to the table and that does not necessarily mean adopting socialism i hate that that's kind of getting conflict uh you know conflated in the conversation here when it has that has no um really there's no point of it you know i think we need to listen to what she's trying to create and then also what's so bad about having a health care for all people like why are we fighting off these things that would make our society a better place well actually uh, former ohio governor john Kasich, who's a republican and a biden ally uh he was on cnn he actually talked about that and he, and he did of the many things he said that was the one thing that i agreed with where he's like this whole socialism story needs to just get thrown out because it's it's dumb it's, false. it's not working and it's false. Um, but then he also uh, called out the far left for threatening Biden's presidential campaign. Here's that clip. And the far left can push him as hard as they want. And frankly, the Democrats have to make it clear to the far left that they almost cost him this election, uh, that people in this country are basically center, center right, center left. They're not far left and they're also not far right. And we got to hope that the far right will act responsibly now that this election is over. That's not true. I'm sorry. Yeah, he said that. But and I think that's a lot of kind of Republican talking points. Um, but that's most definitely not true. To be quite honest, I think it took a lot of the people who are on that progressive notch, you know, on that side to really kind of show up and show out. And let's I just want to read her tweet back to John Kasich. She said, anyone saying this after immigrant organizers delivered Arizona, black grassroots flipped Georgia, Michigan going blue with reality bending 94% Detroit margin, and Rashida Tlaib running up the margins in her district, and Trump publicly challenging Elon Omar in Minnesota, and losing isn't a serious person. So there you go. That was AOC on Twitter. Now, uh, coming up, did Joe Biden's acceptance speech include a Schitt's Creek shout out? That is next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, we've got on our personality and musician from the Ellen DeGeneres show, Keelan Allen, joining us. Yes, yes. He's not only known for his React videos, but honey, he is taking on music. And it's been like two years since he's been on our show. He was one of our first guests that we've had. So it would be nice to to catch up with him. Yeah, he's got a new Christmas album and we love celebrating Christmas already. Might as well. And we will be asking him about the Ellen drama that happened over the summer. So stay tuned for that conversation in just a bit. But let's get into somewhat training this hour. 
Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany spoke to reporters today who continue to ask about so-called evidence of voter fraud that the administration keeps claiming. We want every legal vote to be counted and we want every illegal vote to whoa, be... Whoa, whoa, I, I just think we have to be very clear. She's charging, uh, the other side is welcoming fraud and welcoming illegal voting. Unless she has more details to back that up, I can't in good countenance continue showing you this. I want to make sure that maybe they do have something to back that up. But that's an explosive charge to make that the other side is effectively rigging and cheating. And that person cutting her off from Fox News is Neil Cavuto. How surprising, you know, it's happening everywhere. The networks are just cutting off these news conferences. Yeah, it feels like we're in the upside down, but to be honest, um, I don't think they get a cookie. I'm sorry, none of these media organizations, whether you're on the right or the left, will get a pat on the back from me because y'all created the beast. Y'all allowed for the lies to be spread. You allowed for these folks to kind of have these platforms. And so now that you're cutting it off, it kind of makes no sense to me. You know, I appreciate it. I'm happy you're stepping up to the plate, but you created the beast, honey. Oh, that is true. I would say on the Fox News side, I mean, I, I think that I, it's it's incredible to see. I've never seen this happen, actually, where networks are cutting off elected officials at this level. Uh, but obviously it shows that a statement needs to be made when they are trying to share false information, right? And speaking of which, Philadelphia City Commissioner Al Schmidt, who's a Republican, he is one of three officials running the city's elections. He said his office has received death threats during the vote counting process. And here he is talking about that on 60 Minutes yesterday. From the inside looking out, it feels all very deranged. Deranged. At the end of the day, we are counting eligible votes cast by voters. The controversy surrounding it is something I don't understand. It's people making accusations that we wouldn't count those votes or people are adding fraudulent votes or um, just coming up with just all sorts of crazy stuff. I mean, this is, it seems like it is crazy, uh, though virtually all of the major media networks, including Fox News, has projected Joe Biden as a winner. Trump, as we know, has refused to concede and his campaign has filed multiple lawsuits in several states, has offered little to no specific evidence of these irregularities, and multiple judges have already dismissed some of the suits. Now, in terms of Philadelphia, Trump and his allies have alleged that the Republican election observers weren't allowed into a Philly polling place on election day, but lawyers for Trump's campaign admitted to a judge last week that there were more than a dozen GOP election observers at the site, along with Democratic observers. So, you know, that's all coming out now as they continue to fight this fight. <laughs> now, some good news in terms of COVID-19, Pfizer, their experimental COVID-19 vaccine is more than 90% effective based on initial trial results. That's according to an announcement today. Pfizer and German partner BioNTech said they had found no serious safety concerns yet and expected to seek U.S. emergency use authorization this month raising the chance of a regulatory decision as soon as December. Now, if granted, the companies estimate, uh, estimate they can roll out up to 50 million doses this year, and that is enough to protect 25 million people and then produce up to 1.3 billion doses in 2021. So that's some good news post-election. And as that announcement was made, the Dow reacted soaring more than 1,000 points as well. And uh, that was somewhat trending this hour. What is happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Now, last T report in the last hour, I did tease the celebrity reactions to the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris news. Jennifer Lawrence, because uh, she's someone that I wanted to highlight, because if you don't remember, she revealed in October that she used to be a little Republican and she cast her first ever ballot for John McCain in, 2000, in the 2008 race that went to Barack Obama. Now, mm -hmm. um, she was seen, uh, she actually posted about it. She was seen running up and down her street in her pajamas and some leopard in a leopard print face mask, pink pajama pants, and a comfy pullover before running through her neighborhood and screaming at the top of her lungs, um, alongside with the video that she posted, which now has racked up nearly 500,000 views. She wrote, had no choice but to throw a party of one. Hashtag, come on, Boston, let's 
party. Um, and I thought that was super cute. Of course, uh, Chrissy Teigen and John Legend, they actually took to the streets of West Hollywood on Saturday to celebrate with everyone. Literally, they look like the royal family of West Hollywood that. coming down the street, sitting on top of their roofs, blasting music. It was pretty epic. And it was like the only time I wished I was in West Hollywood, to be quite honest. Right? I was amazed. That was really cool to see. It was fun. Yes, yes, yes. Now, moving on in the T-Report, um, watch out, Beyonce, because Blue Ivy is coming for your Grammy status, girl. Blue Ivy Carter can now add book narrator to her resume. The eight-year-old daughter of Jay-Z and Beyonce is set to narrate the audiobook for Hair Love, which is based on the Oscar-winning animated, uh, animated short film. And, of course, Matthew A. Cherry, who was actually um, a, fan, a friend of the show, um, directed the movie and announced the news on Instagram along with a little bit of a sample clip. Um, she has already won, if you if you just want to know this, Blue Ivy has already won a BET <laughs> Her Award for the song Brown Skin Girl and an NAACP Image Award for that same single. Now, with the audiobook performance, there's an opportunity for Blue Ivy to nab a Grammy nomination for Spoken Word. I mean... She okay. has a long way to go because Beyonce has so many Grammys. Jay-Z has so many Grammys. But how iconic is that? And the little clip is so cute. Head over to WeirdChannelQ.com to check it out. And more pop culture news you can expect in the next T-Report in next hour. Yeah. Oh, love Matthew Cherry. That is awesome. Uh, now coming up, Nevada made history over the election, becoming the first state to recognize gay marriage in the state constitution. Lambda Legal joins us to talk about the importance this, of this move next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Nevada voters added four new amendments to the state constitution, including the right to same-sex marriage last week. And this comes two decades after the electorate voted to add the ban to the constitution. And that ensures same-sex marriage will remain state law, even if a future U.S. Supreme Court overturns its 2015 decision legalizing it throughout the country. Back with us is Law and Policy Director from Lambda Legal, Jenny Pizer. Thanks for jumping in. We know how crazy last week was. So hopefully things are slowing down for you. Well, they're not really slowing down, but it's great to be with you. Always great to be with you. <laughs> yes, that's always positive thinking, right? Um, so with gay marriage being legal federally, as I mentioned, why was it so important as, at the state level right now? Well, I think uh, so the Nevada process requires a couple years worth of the legislature considering the measure, considering the, it again, and then the voters. So when this process started, I don't think this was the top drawer issue for lots of people because the Supreme Court had just ruled there was no question marriage equality was the law of the land. Having marriage discrimination written into a state constitution is offensive. I've got to say, I mean, constitutions are supposed to be about protecting us, our basic rights, uh, and certainly the freedom to marry is, is a constitutional right. And so it, it's not a good thing, as 30 states have had written into their constitution that same-sex couples can't marry, and just having those state amendments blocked by the U.S. Supreme Court decision, that's not great. But it was more symbolic, you might say. And, and I don't mean to, that that's nothing, because actually symbols are powerful. They do matter. And, and that's why the folks in Nevada wanted to remove that symbol of discrimination so that their state constitution, again, could stand for equality of all people. But it turns out, a couple years later, now that we're, we're looking at a U.S. Supreme Court that is dramatically more conservative than it was a couple of years ago, because President Trump had three appointments to that court, and just recently, two members of that court, Justices Thomas and Alito, issued this very odd statement, which actually they called a statement, in a case saying, no, we're not going to take this case from Kim Davis, the clerk who didn't want to issue licenses. That's not a good case to take. The court didn't take it. But two justices issued the statement saying, but in another case, we want to reconsider Obergefell. We want to reconsider the marriage equality uh, ruling of just a couple of years ago, but in, in 2015. Yeah. And that's problematic, as we know. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the reality is we don't know what the court is going to do. And there's now uh, a scary uncertainty, a, a cloud over things. And, 
and of course not just for LGBT people, but for all sorts of groups who need the Constitution and laws to work for all of us. We don't know what this court's going to do. Okay, Jenny Pizer again is with us, Law and Policy Director from Lambda Legal. Um, so is this something that we're seeing only in Nevada? Is it happening um, on other states? Well, Nevada is the first, but there are conversations happening in some other states. Every state varies about what their process is and how and how difficult or, or not difficult. It, I mean, amending a constitution is never easy, and that's, you know, as it should be. But I, I think others will be thinking about it in part because we don't know what will happen at the U.S. Supreme Court level. And the reality is we've gone from two-thirds of the American public opposing marriage equality to today where two-thirds of the American public supports it. And that's what the vote said in Nevada. So really, although we're worried about the U.S. Supreme Court doing potentially doing something out of step with where the American public is, the possibility to do whether we call it cleanup or readjustment or repairing the damage done in 30 states to state constitutions, I think a lot more people will think about it. Now, the day after the election, uh, there was the Fulton versus city of Philadelphia case. It was the foster case that went to the Supreme Court last Wednesday. So where do we stand on that right now? Because that definitely infringes on the rights of LGBT plus individuals. Yeah, well, so that case is about the city of Philadelphia uh, giving out contracts to agencies to screen potential foster parents um, according to Philadelphia law that says no discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And Catholic Social Services, which longtime contractor uh, did this work for the city, said, well, we can't follow that because of our religious reasons, but we insist on continuing to do that work with city money. If you don't let us do that work the way we want to do it, you're discriminating against us. And they lost at the, at the trial level and on appeal. I will tell you during the argument uh, last week, there certainly seemed to be some justices who might consider this to be discrimination against the, the faith-based agency. If so, if it were to go that way, it would be a dramatic change of law because usually if government or anyone is hiring somebody to do work, they get to set the terms of work. And if non-discrimination is a term, they get to pick vendors that won't discriminate. All right. Well, I guess we'll see on that, considering who's um, in the Supreme Court right now, what happens. Jenny Pizer, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. Anytime. That was Jenny Pizer, Law and Policy Director from Lambda Legal. Now coming up, we're starting the week off with some fun from Ellen. Digital star Keelan Allen joins us to give us a listen to his new Christmas album and more. Don't go anywhere. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We love having guests stop by the show because it makes us, us step up our game, really. Oh, for sure, especially when the guests come on looking better than us. Um, but it's a radio <laughs> program. I don't have to worry about looking cute today. It's radio. <laughs> That's our excuse always. <laughs> well, let's introduce our guest. You know him from Ellen with his hilarious Kalen Reacts videos. He's been making his own mark in digital and beyond, recently appearing in Seth Rogen's An American Pickle for HBO Max. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. He's now moving into the music space with the release of his debut album, the Christmas EP titled For Christmas Sake. And uh, here's a preview of the song Santa Slay. It's time to jump on. They want to see you got a flown it. No. I ain't waiting till morning. You need it now. Stay up. Stop yawning. And you can keep on Rudolph. Get me a runway in red bottoms. Child, that's why I've been shopping. I look too good not to get y'all something. It's the most fun holiday. All the kids waiting for this sleigh. Please welcome Kaylin Allen on Let's Go There. Thanks for being here. Hey there, how are you? Uh, we're good. We try to keep yeah. up with you because clearly <laughs> quarantine, you have been busier than ever. And <laughs> honestly, you went through a whole kind of, I feel like, refinding yourself. You know, mm-hmm. how has quarantine kind of shaped the person we're seeing now? You know, I think quarantine really helped me. I think what it did, it provided me the space and the time to sit with myself. You know, I think Mm -hmm. before quarantine, I was just always like going, 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 going. So I never had any time to just be still. And with being still, I was able to be a lot more creative, but a lot more focused and a lot more grounded in who I am and who I am not, most importantly. Mm -hmm. 
So I think during that time, I was able to really just redefine what my place was within this industry because it was the first time in two years since I had started that I was able to actually look back and reflect on what I had done so far. Yeah, and you've done so much. I mean, being part of the Ellen family has been huge for you. What was that like being so close to that and all the kind of drama that went down? And I'm sorry for like kind of diving into that, but we had to ask. I mean, at this point, it's inevitable. Well, anybody knows me knows that I am very much a solution oriented type of person. Yes. You know, and I don't expect any establishment to be perfect. At the end of the day, everybody that works at the show is a human being. And so for me, my focus was like, okay, well, if there are issues, how do we fix them? What is the solution? What are the conversations that we need to have? And what do we need to do to make it the place that everybody believes it to be, the place that I believe it to be? And I think what what happened was that people took immediate action and did what was necessary, you know, and I'm very proud of the work that we have done and the transition that we have made as well, as far as even with the content that we do on the show as well, because we also went through another transition within the show after the whole Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, situation happened. We were very much like, we need to also talk about uh, important topics and issues and, and provide platforms to more diverse groups. So I am very proud of the work that we have done since all that has happened. And what's so wonderful is, I know you've been so open and honest, especially like so many people, but you specifically have been so open and honest about when you're posting things, it's like people just unfollow you. You know, mm-hmm. it's like people realize, oh, Kaylin is black and he going to speak up for black folks. How yeah. was that? Was that kind of hard? Because one, that is all connected to your job. It's connected to the way that you make funds. Were you mm-hmm. worried? Um, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily worried because I think for me is that when it comes down to a follower count versus my integrity and my dignity, I will always choose my integrity and my dignity. Mm. Um, And so for me, I was just like, okay, well, bye. See you later. You know, I, I, I lost a lot of followers again just this past weekend when I spoke up about, you know, the presidential win of Biden, you know, and stuff like that. But I, I just don't really care. You know, my self-worth is not determined on how many followers or likes like it. And I also believe that you lose some, you gain a thousand more, you know, so I don't really think of it that way. I just believe in authenticity and staying true to myself. That's so awesome. Again, we're talking to honor personality, actor, musician, Kaylin Allen right now. Yeah, I I think that is important for long term, not just success, but happiness, to be honest, because this industry is crazy and all you've got is you. And so you better take care of you. Exactly. Uh, So you also have a podcast now. I'm your biggest fan. Like talk about all the other stuff like you just launched all the stuff during quarantine. Yes. So um, during the time off, I was like, I want to definitely start branching out and doing more things and being a little bit more versatile and also giving an opportunity for people to get to know me on a more, you know, unscripted, like candid version. Right. And so that was when I came up with doing my YouTube personally, Kaylin, which is all about like self-help and just talking about who we are as human beings and what makes us who we are. And then the podcast, which is going to come out next year, is called I'm Your Biggest Fan. And basically the podcast is all about nostalgia. So the reason why I came up with the idea was because one of my first guests when we were pre-taping was Adrian Bayonne Holton. And yes. yes. And with Adrian, we talked about the Cheetah Girls, right? And I was like, I want this podcast to be about nostalgia. I want to talk about all these people that were integral in my growing up, who made me who I am. You know, like I want to talk to people like Raven Simone and figure out what it was like being an icon of that time. And knowing that you had all this influence before social media was even a thing. Like, what was that like? And were there any hurdles? How did you get through? What were challenges that you faced? You know, I want to hear more about the journeys of those people. Oh, I am so excited to like listen to that podcast, but we got to take a quick break because we got to talk all things Christmas. My favorite time of the year, honey. I skip over Thanksgiving. I skip over Halloween. Christmas is my moment. And we're talking all about Kaylin's new Christmas album for Christmas sake coming up next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new channel Q. We are back with actor, singer, on-air personality, social media star, I mean, multi-hyphenate, Kaylin Allen on the show right now. We've been talking a lot about, you know, his work on Ellen, his new podcast, YouTube channel, but let's get into the Christmas album. It's called For Christmas Sake. 
Here's a little preview of that. Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. I've been an awful good guy, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Now the album is available basically tomorrow, Tuesday, depending on when you're uh, listening. Tuesday, November 10th, uh, so definitely check it out. But uh, Kaylin, what made you want to do a Christmas album? Well, for me, any year, if no matter what is going on through that year, the moment that I just feel unlimited joy and happiness is the holiday season. No matter what I've experienced that year. And so I just was looking back on this year and I was like, "Woo, baby, this has been rough, you know? And I said, you know what? I want to create something that is very special and that will take everything that I love about the holidays and hopefully feed it into the homes of so many others. And so that was why I decided to make for for Christmas sake. And that's why the album is called For Christmas Sake, as in this project is being done. I know it's been rough, but we're doing it for Christmas sake. Not you trying to take Mariah Carey's bag. (laughs) Right? (laughs) No, but I I think I love that because one, weren't you a theater kid growing up? Like hasn't music always kind of been a part of who you are regardless? Yes. So I've always been a singer. And in fact, singing was like my first love. Like that was the first thing that I ever did. I used to like sing the national anthem at baseball games and basketball games and would travel all of Kansas City to sing at different events. And then I kind of just, didn't do it as much once I, you know, started doing what I'm doing now. And then over the break uh, during the whole pandemic of it all, I started to sing like Disney songs on my Instagram and stuff. And then people really loved them. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to make a Christmas album. Yeah. It's so much fun. How do you decide? I'm Jewish, but I love a good Christmas. Uh-huh. Uh, I celebrate Chris Hanukkah, by the way. Okay, uh, but, <laughs> but how do you decide what songs you want to do? Because there's so many great Christmas songs. Well, okay. So the album has three original songs and then it has two classics. So when I came up with the concept of the album, I was very specific that I wanted to give a little bit of everything. I wanted there to be variety. I wanted to make sure that it was a diverse album that anybody could find a track on the album and be like, oh, I love this, you know? So like Santa Slay, I call it the gay anthem, you you know? Like it's very like gay club Vogue down, you know? And then we have Christmas Liz Within You, which is the song that I wrote and honestly my favorite song. And that one gives you very 90s Mariah ballad. You know, it's just very sweet. It has MJ Rodriguez on it. And then For Christmas Sake has Alex Newell on it. And that song specifically is all about the comedy. You know, it, it has the what everybody loves me for. Then we have Noel and Oh Holy Night, which is just a classic, you know, really bring in the, in the holidays. And we got Santa Baby where we get a little bit more risque. Yeah. Okay. So do you, do you think this is going to help people no longer put you in the box of Kaylin's only reacting to certain things? Is this helping kind of move you forward in the place that you want to go career-wise? Yes, I I do. I think there was a misconception, you know, when I do a lot of panels and stuff and people ask me what it was like coming to Hollywood, you know, because what people don't realize is like those videos were an accident, you know, and I always say that when you get to Hollywood, nobody asks for your resume, you know. Everybody just assumes that just because I lay in the bed and I talk about food that I don't have any of the talent, that I can't do anything else. But truth be told, I'm very multifaceted. You know, I got two degrees, you know. So it's like I know how to do it. And so I'm excited for people to see this, especially when I start performing it live and then also seeing like the videos that we've made. They'll see that, no, Kaylin actually knows what he's doing here. Oh, we love having you on and celebrating everything with you. So we appreciate you for coming today and, uh, you you know, talking about all this stuff with us and being so honest. Of course, anytime. And honey, Kaylin is beat right now. The face is on. Yes. I love it. I had to say something. It's an an audible (laughs) program, but you look amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And please check out Kaylin's new album, The Christmas EP, For Christmas Sake pretty much out now so just go check it out and listen to it stream it wherever you are Uh, and coming up on the show Melania is reportedly waiting to leave the White House to divorce Trump the latest headlines next and what's trending this hour let's go there with Shira and Ryan the new channel Q Coming up on the show, how Stacey Abrams led the way to Georgia becoming blue. She had a very specific strategy she worked on for the past decade, and Politico is joining us for that conversation right after this. Let's get into some what's trending this hour. You know, this doesn't surprise me. TikTok users are trying to troll President Trump 
This time by calling into a hotline for voter fraud started by his campaign and making false and often silly reports to clog the lines. Uh, now, Rudy Giuliani tweeted, as well as many other people in the administration, hashtag stop the steal, tell us what you are seeing, report a case. They included the number 1-888-503-3526. And here's just one of the false calls made. Uh, this one comes from Alex Hirsch, who created a Disney TV show called Gravity Falls. And this video went viral. Uh, yeah, I'd like to report an incident of voter fraud. Yeah, so I, um, I committed some voter fraud. I'm very proud of it, and I'd like to tell Mr. Rudy Giuliani about it. Great. Um, awesome. My name is Stan Pines, P-I-N-E-S. You got that down? Yes. So, you know, I, I went in there, and uh, I had a big old sack, and I just started just taking ballots out of the box. Now, while I do think this is funny... I just don't think this helps right now with how, uh, you know, dramatic this has become and really the the narrative and how divided it is because it, it just doesn't help the situation. That's all I can say. Oh, no, it doesn't help the situation at all. But unfortunately, it is the climate that we're in and I'm hoping we can move out of it. Yeah, exactly. And it's obvious that it is a joke. I'm sure these uh, people responding to these calls don't appreciate it because they really do want to find real voter fraud. So... <laughs> but I do think it's funny and I do think this administration deserves. <laughs> there you go. Uh, now, President Trump announced today that he has replaced Defense Secretary Mark Esper with the new acting secretary, Christopher Miller, who had been confirmed by the Senate as the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. Esper gave an interview to Military Times ahead of his firing saying, quote, who's going to come in behind me? It's going to be a real yes man. And then God help us. Now, uh, this is an interesting one that has come out. Not surprising. Melania Trump is supposedly out, not just as first lady of the U.S. She's out of her 15 year marriage. And that is according to someone I'm not sure we should listen to, but former reality star and White House aide Omar how do you pronounce her name again? Omarosa. 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 Thank you. Mm -hmm. She uh, said, Melania is counting every minute until he is out of office and she can divorce. She told this to TV show host Lorraine Kelly over the weekend. If Melania were to try to pull the ultimate humiliation and leave while he's in office, he would have find a way to punish her. Now, she added that Melania, like 99.9% .9 of the human population, is repulsed by her husband. I think that was part of the post, by the way. I don't know if she just said 99.9%. Uh, but Melania supposedly burst into tears when her husband won the election in 2016 with one friend saying she never expected him to win. We all know that she was very late into moving to the White House. She hasn't been you know, out there publicly a lot. She hasn't really enjoyed her position as first lady. We know that audio came out about her complaining about the whole um, Christmas at the White House. So she hasn't really had a fun time in this job. She's ready to get out. And that's probably what she's doing. Yeah, and I don't think this news is anything that we don't already know. So I don't know who asked Omarosa her opinion, but I hope she goes back to the hole that she came from. Well, that's all I have to say about that here. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in the T-Report, Ryan? Okay, so Eva Longoria, girl, she is in some hot water. And let's dive into the T-Report, those pop culture moments that are trending right now. Following an MSNBC uh, interview with Ari Melber, who actually just followed me on Twitter, by the way, because I tweeted about this interview. And then I tweeted after that tweet, like that he could get it because Ari Melber is like very attractive to me. Um, okay. But anyway, he tweeted me. And so he's my boyfriend. But um, Eva Longoria, <laughs> back to the story. Eva Longoria, she had an interview on Sunday. And the actress, basically, who is now being... Uh, criticized because she was praising Latina women voters while seemingly downplaying the votes of black women following Joe Biden's win, had to issue a statement on Twitter in which she had to clarify her comments. But first, here is the moment that got her in hot water. The women of color showed up in big ways. Of course, you saw uh, in Georgia 
what what uh, uh, black women have done, but that Latina women were the real heroines here, beating men yeah. in turnout in every state and voting for Biden Harris at an average rate close to three to one. Now, um, she had to, you know, write out a, a statement on Twitter on, and she also put it on Facebook. And here's what she said. I'm so sorry and sad to hear that my comments on MSNBC could be perceived as taking credit from black women. When I said that Latinas were heroines in this election, I simply meant that they turned out in greater numbers and voted more progressively than Latino men. Um, now, actress Kerry Washington, because when I tell you black women were on her, uh, actress Kerry Washington later uh, retweeted Longoria's statement and came to her defense. She said, I know Eva like a sister. We have been in many trenches together. She is a fighter for all women. Um, read below. This is what she meant. This is how she truly feels. And honestly, I I kind of hate that her black friend kind of came to her defense in this moment because it's kind of Eva's fault. If you listen to the clip, she messed up in her wording. She said what she kind of said and she has to take responsibility for that. I don't think people need to be jumping in to like be like, oh, she's such a great person. We get that. But she could also like praise Latina women without bringing black women down in a way. And I think people mm. are kind of over the oppression Olympics that often happen when discussing either black women or the Lat Latin Latina women and, and all these things. So it's a complicated conversation. Yeah, it's it's nuanced. And I, I think the big conversation coming out of this is that the uh, Latino vote was very clearly in support of Trump right now. You know, and that's something that the Democrats really need to work on. Yeah, the data didn't even really make sense in what, you know, Eva was trying to say on on the interview. But if you want to watch the whole clip, if you want to read the whole statement that she released, head over to WeAreTurnalQ.com and keep us followed at LT, LGT Show everywhere. And that's your team report. Okay, coming up, how Stacey Abrams and her allies turned Georgia blue. We discuss that next with Politico in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. All eyes have been on Georgia this election as longtime red state turned blue, but this change didn't happen overnight. It came from the hard work of the past decade by Stacey Abrams and a group of activists. Abrams lost the gubernatorial election in 2018 to Brian Kemp, but that didn't stop her from setting her sights on the big prize of 2020. Now, her campaign and its allies registered more than 800,000 new voters, so huge, many of which were young and of color. And that led Joe Biden to winning the state by more than 10,000 votes as of yesterday. Here to talk more about her impact on this election is Maya King, politics reporter at Politico. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, how pivotal was Abrams' strategy in flipping the state? You know, it, it was all important. I mean, it was the product of nearly 10 years of organizing. She started the New Georgia Project as a state representative in 2013, knowing that the state had a lot of voters of color, first-time voters, um, groups of people who, you know, are often left out of the political process, but still stand a really strong chance to change outcomes in elections, as we've seen. You know, it just got Democrats to think differently about how they could build their coalition and at its core is appealing to these voters of color and first time voters instead of trying to change messaging every two to four years to try to um, fit the whims of moderate, undecided and often white voters in, in these states. Yeah, and in the final weeks leading up to Election Day, Biden, Harris, and Barack Obama all made trips to Georgia. I I feel like there probably had to be some type of like, oh, convincing in some ways, for, because obviously Georgia is known to be a red state. But what did, you know, these kind of groups composed of Black female elected officials, voting rights advocates, and community organizers find where Democrats were kind of falling short in the South? Like what wasn't connecting? Well, I think really it was just the message, you know, um, Democrats were trying to match like kind of straddling these two different lines, not wanting to be too progressive, but still wanting to run on issues, you know, that mattered to, to more left leaning voters. And I think that your point about convincing is like putting it really nicely because one thing that Abrams told um, my colleagues in interviews in the past is that she's been pushing Democrats, I mean, for the longest to really not just come and visit Georgia, but to give the state some money and to really like invest in these voters and these voters of color um, the same way that they do a lot of the like, I guess, nebulous terms that we use like 
white working class voters, yeah. suburban voters. Those are like a majority of that coalition. Um, those are people of color. Mm-hmm. You know, those are black and Latino and Asian folks, especially in Georgia. But they're not often thought of as such. So, um, of course, Abrams was leading that charge. But a number of activists with the New Georgia Project, her group, were also helping with that. Nikema Williams, who was a state representative and the party chair, was also really instrumental in getting people to understand Georgia as a state that really um, was and is in play. And so they're feeling really proud of, of the work that they've done now, actually seeing it play off and real payoff in real time with this um, this lead that, that Biden currently has in the state that is only continuing to grow. Yeah. Again, you're hearing the voice of Maya King, politics reporter at Politico. Where do you think this leaves Stacey Abrams in terms of the political landscape? I feel like this is definitely just the beginning for her. Like, is she going to be joining the administration? Like, what are you hearing? Yeah, her vo- I mean, her name is being floated in all different kinds of rooms, many of which I am not at all privy to. Um, <laughs> one thing that I do... I know I don't get those kinds of scoops one day, but um, I have heard her name floated for DNC chair. I've heard a couple of people like saying that might be something that um, she would be great for. And I think, though, what what Abrams herself would really like to see is just widespread implementation of the strategy that she has, um, you know, honed. And uh, both of the candidates in Georgia's special Senate election, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, have said that her strategy has really made their victories possible and, and made it possible for them to even get to a runoff election. And I believe that both of them plan to, you know, employ a similar strategy again now in these less than 10 weeks, about nine weeks right. uh, between now and the and the actual runoff election where voters in Georgia will have to re-register and turn out again. Um, and runoff elections don't usually inspire the same level of political participation, but for Democrats to win, they're, they're probably going to have to. Do you think a year like 2020 had to kind of happen to make moments like Georgia and Joe, uh, Joe Biden's win happen? I do in part. And what makes me feel that way um, is the widespread um, activism and organizing that we saw on the ground across the country. Um, A number of activists that I've spoken to have said that Biden's win would not be possible without Black enthusiasm and Black voter participation. And the millions of people who took to the streets this summer and um, in defense of Black lives you know, established a framework or um, a platform to register those voters, engage those voters and get them to the polls. Yeah. And I I have to agree with you about hopefully, Mm -hmm. fingers crossed, Stacey Abrams becoming the new DNC chair, because honestly, the DNC that we saw today was really, not today, but this year was focused on those undecided, let's be honest, white voters. Right. And I think she proved that obviously she can get Young, young voters of color, you know, engage and enthusiastic about the process. And maybe we'll see that kind of even change, you know, in the, the for the next year, for the next DNC. It would be interesting. Again, that was uh, Maya King, uh, politics report at Politico. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, coming up, President-elect Joe Biden's immediate executive orders he plans to sign to reverse Trump's policies. Those de- details next with The Washington Post in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show with our Yaz Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. And of course, we could give lots of Yaz Queens to Kamala Harris because she killed it over the weekend. Yes, she did. She gets all the honorable mentions she deserves. I mean, making history looking amazing. I mean, sounding amazing. Her speech was inspirational and most definitely was full of tears on Saturday night. Yeah, and another shout out. Uh, goes to her husband, who is the first second gentleman, also happens to be a Jew. <laughs> I, I mean, look, we're going to let you have this one because, yes, you are right. He's the first Jewish person married to a president or VP. This is according to timesofisrael.com. No Jews have ever been elected to the highest or second highest office in the land, though outgoing U.S. President Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka, is Jewish. <laughs> She's kind of Jewish. Um, well, the funny thing is, uh, you know, Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden, she's the first uh, Italian-American okay. uh, as, a, as a first lady. So that's absolutely amazing. 
We love that. Okay, but let's get into spotlighting someone who definitely deserves the mention today because we like to feature those who you might not know. Uh, now, Yesa Val um, is part of Haiti's first safe house for transgender women that opened last week. Uh, the home founder um, is this woman who said, when the rest of the population has a cold, the trans community has pneumonia. Just imagine that with the hunger, poverty. Now, she's doing amazing thing for, things for the transgender community as well as in Haiti. She's U.S. born and Haiti's first publicly open transgender woman who is a mother of two and a wife. Uh, she has a degree in education and clinical psychology, and she was a teacher and school counselor before becoming a full-time community mobilizer, activist, and gender identity spokesperson. How about that? Okay. And here she is uh, talking more about the importance of her work. Once people find out or when someone knows or, you know, you're transgender, all of a sudden, or you're transsexual, all of a sudden, you're no longer human. Your education does not matter. Your background doesn't matter. All they see is that, you know, you're just, all of a sudden, all you become is, you know, a poster child for trans identity. And that does not, and then, then you're open, you're vulnerable to whatever their uh, opinions, hatred, or actions may be. And also people need to understand, need to understand that if you want democracy in Haiti or anywhere else, it democracy is government by the people for the people. And it needs inclusion. Now, a recent study found that transgender women in Haiti had an HIV prevalence of 27.6%. That's 14 times higher than the general po population. Plus, they are more likely to be homeless, to sell sex, to survive, and to face extreme violence. So we really want to give a shout out to Yesa Val and everything that she is doing in Haiti today. Oh, love stories like this. It's so important. And uh, shout out to her. Slay, queen. Slay. Yeah. And then another shout out to Chris Nickick, 21, from Florida, who was certified with a Guinness World Record for being the first person with Down syndrome to complete the Ironman race over the weekends. Which, first Pretty of all, amazing, huge deal, regardless of yeah. if he has Down syndrome or not. I couldn't do it, but incredible job, incredible work. Yeah, he's a triathlete at the age of 16, and he doesn't use his condition as an excuse, he said. Uh, just works harder and has plenty of encouragement from his parents. We love that. So a shout-out and congratulations to Chris in Florida for that. You get her, yes, queen of the day. Yes, queen. Some good stuff as we move into a positive week. You know, the election maybe is kind of over. So thanks for hanging out with us today. We appreciate it. It ain't over until Joe Biden is literally being yeah, at I his know. inauguration. Trying to keep Bible. things optimistic, Ryan. But guess what? We'll be back tomorrow, same time, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Channel Q. We're going to be talking about what does Trump's post-presidential criminal investigation look like? Because there's a lot ahead in terms of that. Plus, how one app is helping you spread kindness virtually. That is all on tomorrow's show. And if you miss any of our shows, we always post everything as a podcast. So uh, check out our podcast. Our podcasts are available and on radio.com. Just search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. See you tomorrow. Have a great night. Bye, y'all. Let's go there with Shira Lazar and Ryan Mitchell on Channel Q. What could Trump's post-presidential criminal investigation look like? Because this could get messy. Plus, how the trend of journaling has changed during the pandemic. Listen live weekdays, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Channel Q. Or on your own time with the Let's Go There podcast on the Radio.com app.